the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is that law of Christ? I just shared with you from Galatians, the sixth chapter. What is that law of Christ? We find it in John, the 13th chapter. I'll be reading from verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. This past week I visited another congregation The first time I've been there for a worship service, I was going to hear a very powerful and well-known person from China who suffered great persecution for the faith. I walked in the door with my wife. We were handed a card, and the man greeting said, What is your name? I said, Ray. What is your name, Alexandra? And she said, Alexandra. And he handed us a card uh, advertising their church. So we walked in and made our way to the sanctuary. Oh, we ate a couple of donut holes on the way and a cup of coffee. Made our way into the main sanctuary, found seats, sat down. Soon the sanctuary began to fill, and a couple came and sat beside me, an older couple. I reached out and shook hands with him, greeted him. Um, It was a couple visiting from India. They were there visiting their daughter. And then the service began with praise and worship. I stood there during the praise and worship not knowing the songs and feeling the ignorance of not knowing any of their music, feeling uncomfortable. After the praise and worship, then there was some prayer about surrendering to Jesus. And then the, the presentations were made. As I was leaving, I met a dear brother that I love with all my heart. I asked how he was doing. We shared briefly, and then we left. Uh, Before leaving, Alexandra wanted to get in the prayer line, 
but the person who was praying had to leave for the airport, and so he just pulled everybody together quickly and said a prayer, and that was the end. And I recognized this was the formal church, a church that I've participated in and created along with everybody else. I have no criticism. I've done it time after time. But as I reviewed what happened, I was deeply convicted that I had not loved the brother that had spoken with me briefly. I had not prayed with him. I would not lifted him up. I would not entered into any kind of serious intercession. And that's exactly what he needed. He needed someone to pray God's blessing for him. But it didn't happen. And when the service was over, I turned to the aisle and did not speak to the Indian couple. I should have prayed with them. I chit-chatted with the pastor for a little bit after the service, but I didn't pray for him. And I recognized that I was caught in my own world being a stranger in the church. Everything was very formal and yet very informal, but frankly, cold. There was a lack of honest warmth. I don't say that in any critical way. I'm saying that was repeated time after time all across Washington, D.C., in church after church, where a person can walk in, smile to the people around them, say some brief words, without ever revealing the hurt of their heart, and where they've been attending service for a number of years, and yet they've not really gotten to know anybody in the church, it's just a smiling acquaintance to those who sit in the same seats Sunday after Sunday. I said, Lord, there's something wrong with this picture. How do we begin to deal with this? I didn't feel safe in that place. I wasn't safe. What would have made me feel safe? Well, what a different picture it would have been. And again, I'm not saying this critically. I'm saying what a different picture it would have been had I been greeted with, come, let's pray for you. Let's pray together. Let's ask Jesus to meet us in this service today instead of the casual chit-chat and eat a donut hole and drink gulping a cup of coffee. That was for casualness, not for the ministry of the heart. And I just determined in my heart, I'm done with formal church. I am so done. I'm done with cold church. I'm done with relationships where I am hidden where I don't talk about what I really feel, where everything just 
cranks along, I'm done. I've got to find a new way. The pain is so excruciating. Much of my life I've said, there's no room for me in my own life. What do I mean? Well, I'm just caring about everybody around me and letting them say and do whatever they want to do. I was heartbroken by some people who who blasted me after a worship service and then walked out and never came back. What happened? Well, what happened was, as we went along, I had not confronted their coldness and their behavior. I had instead taken it on myself as though it were okay and I just loved them. Well, part of what this broadcast is all about is dealing honestly with the condition of a man or woman's heart and not allowing spiritual abuse to take place. Not allowing judgments and accusations to be made. We're called to love one another. Alexandra was saying to me before the broadcast, that's a mutuality of love one for another. It's not one-sided. If it's one-sided, it becomes abusive. Did you want to say something? Yes, you're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, I'm sorry, Ryan yes. Alexander Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I couldn't find it, but I was just reading recently. It was such a good point. Jesus says over and over, it's recorded in the Gospels, he said, love one another. And this is an action where both people are loving and both people are being loved. And so there's a mutuality, there's a transparency. Both people are able to have their needs met, to be respected. And that's supposed to be the standard in the church. Jesus said over and over, love one another as I have loved you. And that's not to be a one-sided love, as Pastor Ray shared. We do find, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to love our enemies, but we don't have any indication in Scripture that our enemies are to go on being part of the quote-unquote church while we refuse to honestly talk about the problems and try to resolve them. So if you're in a situation where you're saying, well, this person in the church who, you know, everyone accepts them as a saved Christian, they say they love Jesus, and you're getting into a position where you're saying, well, I just have to love them as my enemy, that's, that's a sign that there's a problem because there's supposed to be a mutual love but amongst everyone in the church. I did want to share... This is just very brief, uh, an excerpt called Unity and Peace in the Church. This is from a book by David Johnson and Jeff Van Vonderen called The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse, Recognizing and Escaping Spiritual Manipulation and False Spiritual Authority Within the Church. 
it's a very exciting and liberating book. I would encourage you to check it out. He writes, this, he gives three scriptures. First, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Philippians 2, 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then Ephesians 4, 3, Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the author writes, Peace and unity are important in the body of Christ, but experiencing true peace and unity does not mean pretending to get along or acting like we agree when we don't. Verses like these have been used to get people to act unified when they're not. The result is a can't-talk relationship system in which problems get swept under the carpet and leaders are not held accountable for their actions. Because the people are not really unified at all, dissension and strife grow through gossip and backstabbing. If you look closely at the Philippians verse, you will see the word maintaining. The Ephesians verse uses the word preserve. In order to protect peace and unity, they have to already exist. It's not possible to preserve or maintain something that is not there. In a spiritually abusive system, people are taught how to counterfeit peace and unity. The irony is that is what is actually maintained is a lack of peace and unity. From the field of counseling, we draw in the concept of the person in a dysfunctional family system who keeps or enforces a false peace, a person known as the peacekeeper. This is the person in a relationship system who gets in the middle of everyone else's relationships and tries to help them ignore their problems with one another. They usually take responsibility for everyone getting along. Actually, peacekeeper is not an accurate description of this person, because to keep peace, there has to be peace to keep. They are more of a truce maker. A truce is an agreement to cease fighting between people who are still at odds and have yet to work out their differences. What the truce maker wants to avoid again is any appearance that there is conflict in the system or in a spiritual system that the leaders have anything wrong with them that might cause others to be in conflict with them. Conflict would be a sign of something wrong. And according to the unspoken rules, there cannot be anything wrong. As a true peacemaker, as noted in Matthew 5, is someone who goes where there is no peace and makes peace. It's not someone who covers over disagreement with a cloak of false peace. It's not someone who gets people who are in total disagreement to act as if they are on the same side. For real peace to happen, not just a ceasefire, there has to be a change of heart. Where does that come from? In James 3, the Apostle writes, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. 
and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice first that James is reminding us that jealousy and strife are issues of the heart. Notice also that where these things are present, there is disorder. In other words, the presence of disorder simply signals a problem in the heart. This is why getting people to smooth things over doesn't help, and will only eventually make things worse. Notice, too, that wisdom is first of all pure. Peace comes after purity. The word pure means undefiled, genuine, true. Wisdom brings peace through truth, not truce. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Accountability, change of heart, and even peace are possible in the light of the truth, but darkness is where wrongdoing and confusion operate. And so, yes, when we come to the end of ourselves and we finally have to be truthful about what we feel and what we think and how we stand with Jesus and how we stand with each other, that can be exceedingly painful sometimes to the point of simply being reduced to tears and crying out to God and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. Would you come and be my peacemaker? Would you come and change what's happening? And then taking the necessary steps to make those changes real. So very simply, when Jesus commands us to love one another, that's only going to happen as we honestly deal with the conflicts that arise amongst each other. We can't just pretend like everything is okay and go on saying that we're loving each other. That's not love. And eventually the problems will just grow worse and you'll end up, one person will end up leaving. It'll, it'll get pretty ugly. Well, I find that generally these kinds of problems emerge out of one person accusing another person. Accusations. Harsh judgments. Superiority. I find they don't arise out of humility, out of kindness. They come as someone displeases us. This is why it's important, if you are going to talk to someone about how you feel, that you actually talk about how you're feeling. For example, you might say, I'm feeling very hurt because of XYZ. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling upset. You don't want to just have a bunch of accusations against the other person. You want to actually talk about what it is you're feeling, and then if the person has done something <coughs> wrong, you can address that by looking at their specific behavior. One woman, director of praise and worship in a church where I was pastoring, made an appointment and came into the office. She sat down and pulled out her notebook 
and there she had several hundred accusations of things that I had done wrong that had made her angry. There was no way to deal with it. It was too big. It was too huge. And my only suggestion to her at that point was, why don't you find a church where you feel more comfortable, where you don't have your heart constantly accusing the pastor? Now, that wasn't necessarily a good way to handle it. I don't like breaking. I don't like cutting off. I like resolving these issues. Well, today we're going to read a chapter out of Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. She has to deal with some of how she feels. I hope it encourages your heart. We're reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. Jackie has been a missionary in Hong Kong for over 50 years. And is still there. She writes, it's the year 2000. And down in South Wall Road sit two old men. I never knew their names, but they call loudly, Miss Poon, Miss Poon. So I stop, and they lead me into nostalgia. Quite clearly, they've been inhaling beer for some time, for as I draw close to the noodle shop, they huff fumes all over me and my friend. Now I recognize them, although it's been a dozen years since we often nodded to each other in the walled city. The one with the red eyes is very excited. Beer? Noodles? Anything. I invite you. I must accept something or there will be a street riot. He's waving his arms around and shouting. The traffic is stopped, and even though I don't feel like a foreigner after more than 30 years in Hong Kong, the sight of one talking to a crazed local in a stained shirt draws the inevitable crowd. Thank you so much. I've just eaten. Just a drink, and I sit down in the street with them, although my host is still wildly gesturing. We all want to thank you, Miss Poon. Do you know, do you know, he turns to my companion, Margaret, what happened in the walled city? Before he can continue, I fill her in a bit. This old man was a guard in the days when the city was in its heyday, when illegal gambling, prostitution, drug dens, and blue films that's pornographic films, made it a haven and a magnet for criminals and gangs. Now the walled city walls had come down, and the city itself too. Now he has to sit outside and look at the beautiful new park, with memories of wonderful old squalor. Now he is unemployable. Today drug pushers use cell phones and hide in proper apartments. His day is gone. He has neither a cell phone nor an apartment, but he remembers, and with maudlin passion, he enthuses some of our story to Margaret. She cared about us, and miracles happened. People who could not change were changed. It was that Jesus. I'm surprised by him. I cannot recall ever talking to him about Jesus. He used to sit in the kanji shop, where the poor old men ate the cheapest food. It was where the unsuccessful lawbreakers hung out and for a dollar or so could spin out hours in the familiarity of the dark city. All these people, Goko, Johnny, Gojai, Winston, many, many, all changed by Jesus. You know, maybe one day I will believe too. 
That has to be the true God. Can I find you? As he speaks, he wipes his eyes, which are leaking yellow, and the other old man gulps and joins in too. Then our potential evangelist includes the noodle seller in his oratory, and suddenly the whole street is challenged to believe in a god that he has seen change a city, a gang boss, and many hearts. Excuse me, I'm leaking tears too, but could I introduce him to you? It's a struggle between the alcohol and the Holy Spirit. Could I reserve that hope? He finally compromises. It was unfair, most moving, and totally embarrassing. I had never done anything for this ex-guard. I had never spoken to him, helped him personally, or been involved with his life. His toenails were still black, yet there was a fuzzy hope in his heart that he somehow attributed to me and Jesus. That was the awful wonder. Long after the walled city walls crumble, the desire for glory still smoldered in his heart. I tried to tell Margaret that it was over the top, an intoxicated exaggeration of my importance in his life, but it was still there. So we were present at one of those times in history when the past blares intruding the present, and I am in them both. I often tell visiting mission teams of this unjust phenomenon. It's fashionable nowadays to visit Asia, China, and the poor for a few days, weeks, or months and call it outreach. Over the years, we've had hundreds of short-termers who want to get the picture immediately, if possible, on video so they can show it to their home church and have an inspired evening. I've begged them to love the people and stay just like Sai D did of me 30 years ago. The disadvantage of short-term missions is a wrong perspective based on this generation's need for instant results. Many have stayed with us and lived in our new houses, now called St. Stephen's, which currently house over 300 men, women, teenagers, and children all over Hong Kong. Sometimes everything goes well and there are real conversions, healings, and glorious glimpses of changed lives. The visitors leaves and wonder why it does not work at home. They wonder why everything seems so easy in Hong Kong. At other times, nothing goes right, even here. The man who prophesied last night beats up a helper the next morning, or the whole house runs away. Then the visitors leave disillusioned. It's nothing like she wrote in her book. We had a hard time. The remarkable fact that after so long, we still see most addicts who come to, to us believe in Jesus, pray in tongues, and detoxify from drugs painlessly does not obscure the fact that they need a changed mind. So the voyeurs leave. They have their video clips, but they never saw it was either all too good or all too bad, and neither was accurate. We love our people, whether they turn out well or not, and the successes do not vindicate our ministry, nor do the disappointments nullify it. What is important is whether we have loved in a real way, not preached in an impassioned way from a pulpit. And then there's time. If God meant a child to grow slowly and safely in a loving family for up to 18 years, why should we be angry at those who do not change at our pace for the sake of our statistics, 
for low, or sadly for some funding. All the unreasonable benefits came for me after nearly 20 years. People I had spent time with so long before never forgot, even though we lost each other for a while. Suddenly, someone from the past would appear again, and it would turn out that he had not killed the memory of a love that was so extraordinary that the giver spent himself in giving until he died. That's Jesus. So we've been the delighted, sobbing representatives of the father whose prodigal son crawled or rushed home after all. Our summer missionaries did not stay to see this, although we hoped they might yearn for it somehow. Stay for the party. The fleeting volunteer sometimes catches a course, sweet and sour, but no one savors the whole menu like me. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, said the master of the banquet when he called the bridegroom aside. But you have saved the best until now. Grandpa, that used to live in the same South Wall Road. He had a cubicle, a cage, which was one tier of a three-level bunk bed enclosed by wire netting so that he could keep himself and all of his belongings in and intruders out. The wooden shelf was heaped with his life, such as it was, and there was just enough room for him to lie down. He was the actor I had noticed in court years earlier. And he had a bad cough. He'd fallen on bad time since the opium dens became too smelly to deter detection dogs and detection men. Even the walled city had been afflicted by the ICAC, that is the Independent Commission Against Corruption in the 70s. In Bat's role, as the actor who had been tokenly arrested in the many reported raids became obsolete. He had to switch to heroin, less detectable but more expensive, and cons constantly hawked phlegm or hacked phlegm. I've often passed his street and seeing him wheezing offered to pray for him. No need. I'm an idol worshiper. He would politely respond, but I persisted, and I blessed him anyway. Sometime later, I was walking down a neighboring street on the outskirts of the walled city, and they told me he was looking for me. I hurried to his patch, where he looked annoyed. I was waiting for you. I've been waiting for days. Then he pointed to his leg, obviously poisoned with escaping pus. Why didn't you see a doctor? This is serious, I asked. I was waiting for you. He admonished me as if I should have known. So I hurried him to a doctor. We learned that the infection needed hospitalization and prepared for the journey. Again, it was an old walled city brother I invited to ride with us in a taxi to the Haven of Hope Hospital. As we traveled, I preached as usual. When you feel withdrawal pains from the heroin, just call on Jesus. He will help you. You must be joking. He became a bit touchy. He was in pain. 
No, it's true, said my brother. Lots of people like me have tried, and we got off drugs without pain. It did not appear that the testimony had penetrated the distressed old man, and we said no more except, just remember. Some days later, I visited the hospital and saw a radiant figure with a healed leg. What about the heroin? Did they give you medication? No, I'm fine. I did what you said. I called on Jesus, and it all went away. I'm fine. No pain. He was off drugs. So then what to do? He had no family in Hong Kong, as they were in mainland China. He had no future in the walled city or south wall road. I invited him to live with us. By this time, we were all over the place. The former houses of Stephen had merely rehabilitated the hopeless for a while, but gave no permanence for the future. Helpful Hong Kong government individuals had offered a variety of old locations, which were unusable for their purposes at that time, but where we could continue to grow up our old men and prepare them to help others or give them time for re-entering society. The Hang Falk camp was a worn-out tin hut. It was meant as a temporary lodging for those waiting for government-subsidized accommodation. There were 12 long huts comprised of 10 or so units, each already past their use-by date. We loved them and enthusiastically repaired the multiple rooms. Tiny spaces had formerly contained whole families, but we now housed several men in each. We made a couple of huts into a huge sanctuary by stripping the sides and erecting a plastic roof courtesy of the British Army. It was like a tent with open boundaries, so as many as several thousand would gather to worship and gawk too. Grandpa Bat became as, fam- as famous as Hong Fook Camp. He got new teeth and clocked about most possessively. He called me my daughter, and we adopted each other. Now I had a Chinese mother and a Chinese father. Here is my offering. He handed me most of his government old age allowance. Times had changed, and now we, he was our help as well as local assistance. With the rest of his monthly sum, we bought buns and bananas. He bought buns and bananas for me and my secretary. We passed them on secretly to those who liked buns and bananas. I need to see my daughter in China. His leg had been healed in the hospital, and his heart's desire for love and acceptance had been met by Jesus and by us. He had been healed by Jesus in many ways. We helped him apply for his daughter, whom he had not seen in decades, to stay with us for a month in the camp. She came and saw her father, the craggy-faced, occasionally toothless, geriatric patient. She also saw his Lord. And then she became our heart responsibility, too. And her family and her village in China, especially poor, Hundreds of them. I had dreamed of the hundreds, yet could hardly cope with the few. This is how it had come about. 
back in the last house of Stephen, nearing the 1980s, the Willenses had left Hong Kong and this puts 15 chapters of history in suspense. A plump Hong Kong man had helped for a while. I took him to the walled city and he also assisted in the new boy house stuffed with over 10 new men. I thought I was training him, although that really meant come with me. I sent him to New Zealand to learn more. Sadly for me, he returned with new ideas. I feel a burden to work with children, he pronounced sweetly. I was not impressed. I didn't understand his language. I need to leave and pursue this, he persisted. But there are children affected by everyone we meet. Can you not stay and find a way to reach them? The way is open for you. I almost begged. However, he had seen a more sophisticated church community where its members were separated into quote-unquote ministries, and he did have a way with kids. He left, and I was devastated. It happened that, at that moment, I was sitting in a little room in our last house of Stephen. No Willenses, no foreign helpers, just twelve men doing so-so, and Jesus doing good. I began to weep. I could only think that it had taken so long to train one man to help, and now I would have to start again, alone, again. I cried and cried. Through the door came plates with barbecued pork on toothpicks, then flowers, then tissues, as I went on grieving. We're praying for you, came the messages from those I lived with that you will get better enough to care for all the people in Hong Kong who still need you. That was not comforting, and it made me howl even harder. We don't, you don't understand, I tried to say. We pray Jesus gives you comfort, they continued. I don't need comfort, I retorted in frustration. You don't understand. I don't need you to pray that I get better to go on. I want you to do what I have been doing. I'm only one person. The trouble was that it looked so easy. Already I had seen Jesus reach men, touch men, heal and change them. The drawback was that as one person, I could only physically do so much, even if that were mightily empowered. You know, Alexandra, I feel very similarly. I'm eager to have some people come and love and love other people. People who will lay their life down. <clears throat> who will do what we've been doing. I can only do so much. Alexandra can only do so much. We need others who will come and and lay down their lives for the work of the gospel and love and be honest and not be consumed with chasing after money or chasing after fame or ministry but who simply want to come and love people and that love will make the difference Does that make sense, Alexandra? Yes. 
What do you want to say? I'm not sure what to say. We're in the middle of a, of a paragraph, actually, where the she, okay, go she on continues on the same point. So she says she could only physically do so much, even if that were mightily empowered. Even Jesus handed over the world to twelve problem-ridden men. Where were mine? Twelve problem-ridden men I had without a doubt, but they expected me to do it all. And so much of the rest of the church was engaged in discovering their giftings rather than giving. I went on crying and saw over a period of three days and three nights many faces. I knew them all. They slept under flyovers and lived in cages. The old women gathered in parks, and all were easy to reach. They just needed someone with time to touch them. In Hongfuk camp, we began to see the outworking of my frustration, which some angelic soul described later as intercession. Teams were formed from the broken to reach the broken. The limping helped the limping. Perhaps we should have renamed ourselves Jacob instead of Stephen, although we retained the name. And so hundreds more were touched not by me, but by those like me who were hardly healed themselves. Again, I was part of an unfair multiplication. Hundreds thanked God for me, although by now I was only remotely associated with their lives. I still connected with the streets and the addicts seeking help. I still visited the prisons, although most of the walking was done by those who had been touched themselves and served in gratitude. I watched them make the same mistakes that I had done, and deal with them rather better. Did you want to say anything? If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing at the National Prayer Chapel, a small house church, if you're ready to lay your life down and love, and learn how to pray, and learn how to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you're welcome to come. We meet at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. Don't expect a formal worship. It's not. It's focused in prayer, praise, sharing, crying out to God. Call me. 703-489-5555. The curious, you won't find the answer here. This is for people who care, who need to be loved, and who are willing to love, willing to lay your life down for the work of the gospel of Jesus. She shares a story of one woman named Elfrida who joined one of these teams. Alfreda's life had been a catalog of horror. Born to a father with two wives and a mother who was probably his mistress, she was brought up by an aunt after her mother committed suicide. The aunt was a lesbian, and Alfreda was exposed to all the permutations of her affairs, which included one with Alfreda's father's wife. At 17, she had a boyfriend and was going to marry him, but she was thrown out of the house when it was discovered that she'd been seduced by him. 
Sexually confused, not knowing whether she loved or hated men, Elfrida became a prostitute and dulled her senses with heroin. For years we had been renting apartments in which men could withdraw from drugs. They were always full, and there was no room for women. I had avoided the old woman's street. The dark, weeping ghost was persistent in her cries, however, and so came the day when I could resist her no longer and took her in. In a small room, six feet by four, Elfrida prepared to come off drugs. Her back was covered with old black bruises, and she was so weak and frail that my friend took her in her arms and carried her to the bath. She soaked a while and was carried back. We laid her down on her mattress and spoke peace to her. She was healed from that moment. When Hong Fook Camp became available, she moved in and it became home. She worshipped Jesus, washed and ironed, and slept a lot. She also cried a lot. I watched with many questions in my heart and mind. We had learned something of praying for those with past hurts, and I had observed both the courage of those who opened up old wounds, still infected with fear and violence, and the eventual resolution as the cross of Jesus cancelled the pain and offered forgiveness to the perpetrators. But in her case, how long would it take? I wondered whether we would have to take her through each nightmare separately. That would take as many years as the afflictions themselves. The cross ought to be quicker. There had to be a solution. Elfrida went with a team from Hong Foot Camp who visited the poor, the wretched, and the unwanted. She saw sadness and a lack of love in the lives of others and realized how much she'd been given. One day she came back from an old people's home obviously angry. They give them beds and vegetables, but that's all. They don't pray for them like we do. She proudly opined, as if the omission was obvious. So she went back, and as she visited came the desire to share what she had received herself. As she bathed the elderly, she prayed for them, too. Elfrida went to see street sleepers with her team, and also found some of the old prostitutes whom she'd known before in the walled city. One was lying incontinent in her urine, having lost the need for a protector. Elfrida washed her body, washed her hair, and spoke of her new life and her Christ. She loved much, for she had been forgiven much. This new woman shed pain, bitterness, and as long as she served others, self-pity. She seemed to shed years, too, and became so attractive that she found a suitor. Their wedding preparations were hilarious, as she planned for the day she'd been dreaming of most of her life. Bridesmaids, flowers, vows, rings. So in her seventies, she married in virginal white and gracefully walked down the aisle to her future husband. It was a glorious day, a picture of how all things can become new. They had a few problems, however. She'd not actually thought, in the euphoria of the wedding, about living out a married life. They behaved just like a young couple and had to grow into their new life. One day she came to my hut. Another elderly lady, Hing Je, a widow, was also preparing to get married. She asked me if she could borrow my wedding dress, and I said she could, Elfrida told me. But she can't. She cannot wear white. She's been married before. 
Ah, uh, well. <laughs> well, we're out of time for today's broadcast. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, where Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel, and we've been reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. I hope that this story encourages and inspires you to reach out and love the people who are really in need. You know, we read these stories and sometimes we might think, that doesn't happen here, but I've been in downtown D.C. and met a woman who was walking around barefoot and I bought her a pair of shoes. So this thing is real and it's not far away. And we'd like to hear from you. We're coming to the end of the month. We're still several thousand dollars away from being able to cover the cost of radio for the month of October. Would you like to help? You can write to us. The National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. I hope you see there's no hype. It's about loving people. That's our commitment. If you'd like to help, we'd like to hear from you. If you'd like to come, call me, 703-489-1785. God bless you. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.